You're listening to Dr. Ward Bond's Life-Changing Wellness, the fastest-growing natural health, nutrition, and inspiration podcast in the nation. Uplifting stories, powerful messages, and triumph over adversity, the experience of entertainment and encouragement is about to begin. And now your host, Dr. Ward Bond. Dr. Scott Silvery was a highly decorated 25-year law enforcement officer that promptly ended in retirement when God called Scott out of public service and into his service. Scott Silvery answered God's calling even when it interfered with his career. And Scott admits that leading people to Christ is more exciting than the 12 years he spent undercover, 16 years in SWAT, and five years as chief of police combined. You know, his education and experience allows Scott Silvery for a deeper understanding in ministering to the wounded. And as he worked to break free from his own past pain and abuse, Having authored over 45 books, Scott's ministry service allows him to mentor aspiring faith-based authors through he and his wife, Leah's Christian publishing house, Five Stones Press. Today, all of us are going to learn what it actually means when God calls you, even when it interferes with your career. And do you have the confidence to tell the Lord, yes, send me. And Scott did just that. So without further ado, let's welcome Scott Silvery. Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be here. Such a blessing. Well, I have been looking forward to this interview for a very long time. You and I are friends on Facebook. Uh, I read your post, very encouraging to the point. You've dropped uh, quite a few truth bombs in some of those posts. And I, and I kept thinking to myself, Scott, I want to talk to this guy. Because I kept picking up little pieces of this story that just kind of uh, shadowed some of those posts, and I'm like, "There's something there," and I want and I want to kind of pull some of that out of you to share with all of us today. No, I'm happy to do it, and and it is it's such a blessing. You can tell those kingdom relationships, be if it's even if it's over Facebook, but uh, the same thing. I would read your words, and I see that you're being blessed, and you're living in the overflow. And in that overflow that God's given you, you 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 kindly steward that to other people, and which is which is the result of this relation uh, this interview. So I appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. And let's kind of start off at the beginning because there's I was reading one of your books, and there was a couple of lines in there that uh, it spoke volumes, and I could sense the deep pain. So tell us about your home life as a child. Yeah. You know, I, I we grew up in South Louisiana, um, typical Italian family, and and there were seven kids and my mom and dad, and and we were probably the the most silent Italian family in the entire city. Uh, and it wasn't because we were quiet people; it was because my dad was so dominant, and and the weapon that he used against us was silence. Uh, we weren't allowed to to speak or, or verbalize or or say I was hurt or I was sad or I was happy or. And, and definitely never the word I love you. And, and, and I actually, I grew up in that, in the, in all seven siblings and my mom were all, were all victims of, of his dominance. And he was a big, he was a, you know, all American football player. He was a, he was a, a football coach. He was a stud and he was physically imposing. And, and he just, and I live, I actually lived my, my childhood in fear. And, and, and to add to that was in the darkness. We, we never once stepped foot in a church, uh, never. And, um, you know, the only time God was mentioned, there was a curse word behind it. And, 
and I uh, just really grew up in a, and just being a victim. And, and I, I didn't realize I was a victim. And, uh, and what I did was that performance-based relationship. I excelled in sports. I excelled in academics. Everything I could do to get my dad's attention because it was performance-based. And, and obviously, no matter what I did was ever going to be enough. And then it wasn't, I never, I didn't hear about Jesus Christ until I went off to college in Mississippi. And, you know, at the time, you know, you're a young guy and you would go to the churches where the, where the best looking girls went. And, uh, and I thought I was looking to date and what I was doing was hearing the word of God that was being planted in my heart. So really coming from that background of, of being a victim, I mean, really living in fear my entire life, uh, drove me, I believe, into my career in law enforcement. Because well, let I, me, did, I had a, I had a. Well, let me ask you this, Scott, because you know when, when children are, it doesn't matter what home, if it's a great home, a silent home, an abusive home, that child is a sponge is going to be picking up things from that living environment. Did you ever do any research to find out what type of living environment that your father grew up in, or what kind of household he grew up in? Yeah, that's a great question, you know, because we started we started to understand uh, my wife, Lee, and I started to understand about the generational legacies and the generational sins. And and so what we always called was that the walk away gene was we took, you know, I took pride in the ability of when I've had enough of a relationship, I just walked away. I walked away from a marriage over 25 years ago. And and so I started to when I really began to forgive my dad then God started to show me, give me, give me more of a compassionate heart. So we started doing research was that my dad actually left home at 17. Uh, my grandparents came from Italy to the United States and my grandfather left home because of an abusive dad. So we see this generational legacy of, of father domination and abuse that's always led to the children uh, escaping the home early. And then of course, then there's broken relationships. So that really drove me to a point in that research where I, I chose, I declared the promises of God and I broke the, the generational curses and the generational sin legacy because I don't want to pass that on to our children. Well, did you find that uh, as you went to college and maybe dating this girl or going out with this girl or, or whatever relationships you had, uh, was that home life, did, did you notice that there was a problem? Or did you think that it was just your family or did you think all families were like that? I mean, even if you were in high school, did you go to a friend's house and think, wow, their home life is great? Yeah, where I grew up, it was it was probably 98 percent Catholic. It was it was it dominated everything. And and so the homes I did go to, there was there was it was more ritualistic. It was never relationship based uh, as I saw other people's relationship with God. And, and, and no knock on the Catholics, but I'm just saying that's that was my impression as a kid. And I would go to home and, and I would see the statues and the and the rosary beads. And for someone who has zero understanding of Christ, uh, that was even more foreign to me. And it was more confusing. So uh, it really didn't. I knew that there was something different in, in my home. But, you know, what you know is what you know. And, and I just I guess I assumed it had been the way I'd come. I'd always known. And I just figured everybody lived that way. Wow. I mean, did you ever come across parents that if you weren't there at, at one of your friend's uh, homes, did you ever hear the parents tell that child, hey, we love you? And if you heard that, what were you thinking? Yeah. 
You know, I did. I didn't. I, I think probably the uh, kind of that birds of a, you know, birds of a feather. Uh, I, when I look back, a lot of the guys that I was friends with, we were all struggling with father wounds. And so I think we all kind of migrated together organically. Uh, we weren't looking for a support group or answers. I think we just kind of had that shared experience of a, of a dysfunctional home life. So, so no, there was never like that shining star family mm. where I was like, oh, I wish my dad would say he loved me. It really wasn't until I was in my 50s when I met my spiritual father, Larry Titus, that, that I first was told, son, I love you. You're special. And, and even at 50 years old, it, it changed my life just to hear that from a father. Wow. Um, let me ask you this, because in your 50s, when you hear that for the first time, what was your initial thought? Oh, my gosh. Well, I was I was bubbling over with excitement. And I, I came back and I told my wife, I'm like, I feel like a, like I feel like a teenage girl. You know, like like I was just exuberant to hear. And he is he is my spiritual father and I love him. And and all he was doing was showing the love of Christ to me and and just just affirming me uh, as a dad, as a husband. And, and I just it ignited in me that. You know, I've, I've always loved our kids and, and just very playful, but to a degree, I still have some of the dominance that my dad had. Uh, I'm more of a drill sergeant than a than a nurturing dad. And, and when I saw my spiritual father, the way he treated me, it made me, I'm like, oh, I've got to become the complete dad. I've got to start speaking affirmation to my kids as well. And, and it really changed the entire family dynamic. Wow. So your family actually started seeing this change in you. Yes, I believe. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was immediate. I mean, you know, Leah has always prayed. She's very, she's very genuine, soft-hearted. She's very strong, also. But, but she's like Scott, like, because I'm, I've, I've been a commander. I mean, my law enforcement career in 1992 was my first uh, command assignment, and then it moved up. So I've always been in like a very high-risk, uh, very serious environment. So that's really all I knew. So commanding, telling, bossing around. It, it not only came natural through my job, but it's what I grew up in. You know, being I was a dominant dad. I was a dominant husband. I was just replicating what I knew that I'd grown up in. Uh, although I didn't agree with it, uh, there was still some of those, some of that residue left over. But really, when I started to see my spiritual dad ex uh, show that in a tangible way, it did. It just touched my heart. And, and it just changed. Like I said, it changed everything in the family dynamic. Well, kind of walk us through and give us some insight of being an undercover police officer. You were a member of SWAT and even became chief of police. What was it like to be in law enforcement? And, and you just kind of give us a little bit of insight already about how dominant your father was. And it almost just became natural to have that type of leadership instinct, so to speak, of telling people what to do. Yeah, you know, I think because I grew up in so much dysfunction, and like I said, I didn't realize I was I didn't realize I was a victim, and but I still had that inherent uh, passion to to pursue people who hurt people, and really had a heart for people who had been hurt, and so I think I didn't grow up wanting to be a police officer. Uh, I actually wanted to grow up and be a, a high school teacher and football coach like my dad. And then I realized uh, back then that I wasn't college wasn't really uh, my thing at the time. And uh, so I, I went into law enforcement 
And I believe that just that passion for people and that that really, I don't want to say a hatred, but maybe at the time it was for the for the predators, people who victimize, that I, I sought out the avenue where I would really have the opportunity to go after the worst of the worst. And, and those were the drug dealers and the, and the gun runners and, and, and your most violent criminals, which led me into undercover operations. And, and I did that. I mean, I worked undercover for 12 years. Uh, part of that time, I was working with the DEA in New Orleans in the 90s when New Orleans was like the murder capital of the country. Um, and then that also led to special operations in SWAT, where I commanded SWAT for 16 years. So it was all just this natural, organic extension of, I don't want to say the hate, but I'll say the passion that I had for protecting victims and pursuing predators. So was your whole law enforcement career in New Orleans? No, I, South uh, in New Orleans, I was stationed there with the DEA, and then South Louisiana, about, about 45 minutes to an hour south of New Orleans for the majority of my career. Yeah, you must have seen a lot of bad things. I'm sure you've probably seen a lot of things and experienced things that uh, you probably never talk about. You know, there's still a lot of things that I that I cannot talk about. And, uh, and you know, that's the thing. I went in and I was, like most police officers, you know, they, I know they get a bad rap and it's, at times, but like no one goes to the academy saying, I want to be a cynical jerk off. Like most of them come in because they, they, they're altruistic. They want to help. Uh, they want to do something good. And just the, just the assimilation process, the cult, the enculturation process of law enforcement, uh, really becomes very toxic. And nobody tells you that you're going to see, you know, so much death and so much dysfunction and, uh, you know, I mean, decapitations and things that people should not see. Uh, you know, I lost eight, eight dear friends of mine that were murdered in the line of duty over the years. And, and so, you know, even like that, I struggle with survivor's guilt for, for so many years. Uh, I, I didn't understand, like, how could I have operated in such a dangerous environment for so many years between undercover and SWAT? And, and, and it's almost this, this guilt of like, like, you know, who was I to survive when I've lost so many dear friends? So it really had an effect on me. And, I, and I'm still untangling some of the vines. You know, to say that I'm completely detached from it would not be the truth. You know, I've seen where, you know, people, who, uh, men and women, and, and I'm going to say mostly men, uh, being in law enforcement, even the divorce rate is extremely high. I mean, uh, how did that, you know, and I'm sure you saw a lot of that going on with, uh, with other officers having those types of problems. And then all of a sudden, uh, what prompted you to retire as chief of police with only four years left before a full 30-year pension? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it is. When I actually, I did my doctoral dissertation. I have a PhD in cultural anthropology. And, and my dissertation's uh, topic research was on police culture. And, and even, I, I guess I wanted to understand where, you know, when I, before I went to the police academy, I was, I'd actually been saved. I showed up at the academy carrying my Bible and a big smile. And, and, and when I entered the academy, I was about a 260-pound uh, bodybuilder. So I wasn't like someone to be picked on, you know. And, and that, like the hazing, the hazing was relentless. They, you know, they call me Bible thumper. They call me happy because I, I truly had the joy of the Lord. And, and I tell you, over the years, over the years, uh, that the, the, the culture, the toxicity of the job really started to wear on me. And, 
And so it really does. It has an effect on divorce. So in my study, uh, I did an observation for several years and a lot of interviews. But and, and this is just this is not statistically vetted out. This is just through my interviews. But about 80 percent divorce rate and uh, amongst law enforcement. And, and it's really, really toxic. So part of me being called out to retire was Lee and I launched what we call Blue Marriage, which was a law enforcement focused marriage ministry. Uh, really with the desire to help law enforcement couples who were struggling because, you know, the culture is like cops will only talk to cops. Uh, you know, they're very, it's a very enclosed culture and very protective. So I figured, you know, I'm one of them. I've been there. I, I wear this, you know, I've got the scars and, and now, you know, we're here to minister to marriage. So that was a big part of what Lee and I were called out to do. The, 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 uh, the retirement side of it. I mean, Ward, that came out of the blue. I was like, I was 26 years in, I had four years left and a 30 year police retirement is a very lucrative as a chief of police. My health care was paid, would have been paid the rest of my life. And I just got a four year contract extension for my city government. So I was in the catbird seat. I was teaching college at night. I traveled as a government, a federal government a subject matter expert. Um, I really was sitting at the tip of the spear where my, where my, earthly career was uh was heading and then like god just hit me he's like he said i need you to retire and i was like no like you don't understand pension math you know like i got four years left god and god's like no you don't understand obedience he's like i've got work for you to do and and i prayed about it and, and Lord, i'll tell you i've been hurt i've been i've been seriously gravely wounded i've seen some of the most horrible things imaginable I always wanted to go back to work the next day. But after I started praying, I woke up one morning and I told Leah, I said, I said, I don't want to go to work today. And it was because, you know, God will give you the desire of your heart. He'll also, he'll also take those desires out. He'll also harden your heart. And, and I knew, I knew. And I walked in that day to talk to my mayor and, and God said, all I want you to tell anybody is that I called you to retire. And that's all I did. I just told people. I said, God called me to retire. And one thing that Leah likes to, likes to you know, tell is, so my city was in between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, and we got a lot of media press. Um, and, and when the New Orleans media started to call, and I just said, God told me to retire. So the next day, like the, the, the headlines in the New Orleans media, it says, God tells chief to retire. And I mean, this is the headline of the New Orleans newspaper. And, uh, and I was just like, praise God for that recognition, you know? So I did. I walked off. I retired two weeks later, and, and I never went back. Well, then, all right, you had stated that you became born again. Was it right before you entered the academy? Yeah, I was, I was saved when it, before I entered the police academy. And, you know, and, I, and I, I, I love the story of Peter about being called versus transformed. And, and I believe that at that time, God had planted the, the calling in my heart. And, and, and I did. I backslid. I, I got caught up in the culture and the darkness. And, and it was about 15 years ago. Then I was baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and that really transformed everything for me. You know, it's, you know I'm, I'm thinking, I'm sitting here thinking about this. And if you weren't born again when you entered the academy, you think things would have been completely different? Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. I think I had a natural inclination towards the chaos, 
I always appreciate because I grew up in chaos. I grew up in violence. Um, you know, I, part of my dissertation study was a comparative analysis to show that that law enforcement, our demographic is very similar to the outlaw biker culture, to an outlaw gang culture. And and my my committee members were like, that's preposterous. That's not even realistic, you know. And I started to show the demographics, uh, the social, the racial, the the gender, the uh, the financial. And the demographics are very close. And what it is for men, uh, a lot of times alpha males that grew up with a father wound, we're looking to belong to something bigger than ourselves. We're looking for brotherhood. We're looking. It's been for Christ in my life. I think I could have easily uh, wound up on a motorcycle cross country, living a life on the edge. And uh, but it was because of the tether that Christ had in my life that protected me and always kind of gave me that. That, that hedge to stay out of the fringe, so to speak. Well, you know, my background has always been in, in health. Um, and so that we would come across medical doctors that would have this God complex. You know, it's like they go into surgery, their word is their word, and it's going to be that way regardless yeah. if you live or die. Was there a, was it more alpha male or was there a God complex amongst law enforcement officers feeling at, at times that they were above the law? Yeah, that's a great question. It's, I just think there's, there's almost this, this, uh, this sacred canopy, canopy placed around law enforcement. And, and, you know, unfairly, but, but the way that cultures kind of put that crown upon law enforcement's head is you become the, the moral entrepreneur. And, and it's really not fair to law enforcement because we're not, we're not equipped. We're not trained to operate in that role. I mean, you are literally deciding who gets custody of a child. You're determining who, who, whose custody we're going to take, um, at times whose life is going to be taken. I mean, those are some serious, serious decisions. And, and really the only function of law enforcement is to enforce the laws that the, that the legislature enacts. So, so that you're really like the, the term that, that bothers people, but the reality is, is you're simply the arm of force for the state. So people are like, well, why'd you stop me for speeding? Well, if you know, if you got a problem with speeding, then that's the legislature that, that creates that law or whatever law that you disagree with. We are only authorized to enforce that so the law has teeth. But because we've been unfairly placed in this position of being the, the moral entrepreneur for society, we're placed in positions where I don't want to say godlike, but it's almost unquestionable, unquestioned authority. Well, now, yeah. over the last ten years, yeah. Well, it's kind of and, like and uh, so you, somebody gets pulled over, okay, and, and, and this is a minor situation. So somebody gets pulled over for mm -hmm. speeding. The person driving is automatically having the thought, you know, here comes judge, jury, and executioner all in one. And isn't that basically yeah. how people look at law enforcement? Like you said, yes, yeah. you're only enforcing the laws that the, the local government has created, but the public's view is completely different. You're, you're right. And, and we don't help ourselves. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy because we do get into that role of, of judge, jury, and executioner because we're, we're afforded a, a high level of discretion. You know, we could you could be pulled over and just say, hey, look, you know, just slow down a little bit. I appreciate it. And, and goodbye. Or it could turn into this whole ordeal. And so that's the, the area of discretion that law enforcement has. And, and for some folks, 
Um, I don't want to broad brush, you know, because there's a lot of great uh, men and women serving. But but for some folks, that authority uh, unchecked can, what does it say? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I find in these situations, like in anything in life, where, where there's not checks and balances and accountability, uh, it's easy to slide off the rails. Well, let me ask you this. What was your experience in transitioning from your career to your calling? Oh, my gosh. You know, I actually wrote a book about that last year. It's called uh, Favored, Not Forgotten. And, you know, I, I, Ward, I did. Like, I was, at the time, um, I was at the tip of the spear. I mean, I was traveling the country and in law enforcement. I was making money and uh, being offered chief's jobs in bigger cities. And, and when God called me out, I thought, man, like I am so important. Like I'm a chief of police. I'm a PhD. I'm this, I'm that. Like God's got something big for me. So I figured like, well, maybe like uh, Robert Morris or, or, or somebody, you know, some mega pastor was going to retire and God had a big church waiting for me. And I waited and I waited and I waited and my, I started to fall apart. And because where's the limelight? Like I would walk into any restaurant in my city as a chief of police and there was always a table waiting. Literally hundreds of people catered to me, not because of me, but because of my position. And all I, and God showed me, he's like, I don't need a chief of police. I need you. And the truth was, I didn't even know who I was. My identity was so grounded in what I did and not in whose I was that it, for about a year and a half, I went through this wilderness season of transition. And, and look, it wasn't easy. I, I gained 70 pounds. I was a triathlete. Uh, I became sedentary, suicide ideation. And it really got to the point where I went to my wife and, and I just told her, I said, Leah, not if, but when I kill myself, I'm not going to leave a mess for you and the kids. I, I mean, Ward, I just, I, I'd live my whole life in the limelight of recognition by a title. And then God said, oh, we're going to put you in the wilderness for a little bit. We're going to break off those old, those old bonds that keep you enslaved. And, and it was during that transition that, uh, that he actually set me free. But there became a lot of, there came, there was a lot of pain in between the, the, uh, the retirement and the calling to serve. Wait a minute. And, and after about a year. There's a story here. Okay. And ladies and gentlemen, I want you to listen very, very closely. Not just to me. I want you to listen to Scott. Scott, let me ask you this. So God calls you to quit your law enforcement career four years to go for a massive pension. You obey. And in a year and a half, you had suicidal thoughts. Oh, but you know... I it was God didn't need me where I was as a chief of police. God needed me where he wanted me to be as his son and servant. So, you know, and I look at as I began to understand the wilderness season and, you know, I, you look at the Israelites and it's like you promised them this promised land. God, like, why didn't you just give them the land? Why did you have them toil for 40 years? Because they had had a slave mentality, a captivity mentality for 430 years. Had he brought them into a land of prosperity? it would have been wasted. It would have been squandered because they hadn't come into submission or understanding uh, of God as who he was. So I'm so thankful that the day after I retired in my arrogant state, as I'm a commander, I'm in chief of police, people cater to me. 
Had I been a minister to men at that time, oh, Lord, I would have destroyed so many people's lives, so many people's lives. So it basically what it was, it was a it was a, a ministry training program that God put me through. And, and you realize in hindsight, it's just like a boot camp or police academy, like you have to break off the old habits, just like the Israelites. God had to break off that, that captive mentality of 430 years. So, yeah, some people think, well, I'm, I'm obedient. Now give it to me. Give it to me. They don't understand that, that sometimes God's got to make that new wineskin before he can pour into you. Before he can use you, he's got to repair the old earthly vessel. And that's that's what I went through. And thank you, Jesus, that I went through that because I am who I am today and I'm able to serve in the way I do. Well, you know, <clears throat> I can relate to that. <clears throat> and and I, and I and my biggest encouragement for every believer is to read the word of God every single day. <clears throat> Even if you struggle with its meaning, the Holy Spirit will eventually tell you and, and coach you and teach you what you keep reading, but never stray from it. Never let it go. God will continue to use that seed because that's a seed he's planting in to you. So after a year and a half of leaving law enforcement, when did the light bulb finally come on? Yeah, you know, and, and what you said is so important because I know you have a you have an incredible street going of, of reading God's word every day and and you know the irony was I did my doctoral dissertation because in anthropology because I wanted to understand what had happened in my life. Like how did I go from a from a Sunday school teacher to an undercover agent, uh, a divorced, you know, divorced dad and, and like how did my life go so sideways? And I did my doctoral dissertation in hopes of getting the answer. And all it did was leave me with a title that even my wife won't call me doctor, you know. But when I started reading the Word of God, and I started, and, and he said, son, you were researching the wrong books. And, and so that's when I started to see the light. When I stopped ask, asking, like, why, and started asking, what? Like, what do you have for me now, God? That's when I began to understand that he had, that he had really helped me break cut soul ties uh, solidified our marriage stronger than ever. And then he started putting me in, in fellowship with my, my spiritual father. Uh, you know, God really called me to minister to men and men see the brokenness in my life and, and they're, they're attracted to that. And, but you know, I did not have a tangible example uh, of a father to be a father to other men. And that's when, you know, when God started to heal me and he's like, son, you're, you're ready. Now let me introduce you to your, to your spiritual father. You know, even Moses had a had a Jethro, right? I mean, a, a dad to to affirm him because when he said, "I've got to go back to I've got to go back to Egypt and confront the Pharaoh," Jethro was like, "Yeah, I, I affirm that." So when I met uh, Larry Titus, uh, my spiritual father, that's when I knew that in that affirmation that my ministry had been launched. You know that there is so much there, Scott, and you know you kind of mentioned my. <clears throat> my Bible streak, you know, it's kind of funny because even this morning I looked down and I'm on 800 the 871st day in a row, but it's amazing, but it's, it's, but for me, you know, I know there's people out there who are probably on their 10,000th day reading their Bible and I get that, but I spent years of my life never reading the word and I fell into the same trap 
as many modern day Christians do today, where they don't mind reading all the books of famous ministers, but they never crack open the Bible and they never read the actual word to find out if they're, if the books they're reading from other people are actually based on what God actually wrote first. Yeah. I would rather go to the very foundation and then if I'm reading somebody else's book, I can go, oh, that's right. Or go, hmm, Holy Spirit, what are they meaning by that? I didn't see that in the Word when I was reading it. And, you know, because yeah. we have to have wisdom and discernment. So that brings me to that's this right. point. You have written up to 45 books. And so how did that start? But before you answer that, how did you meet your wife, Leah? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, it's funny because we get asked that a lot. And she's like, do you want the truth or do you want Scott's version? <laughs> and and I'm like, because mine's, mine's, there's a thread of truth in there, right? But uh, but I was so fortunate. When when I did my, my doctoral research and a publisher, they, they purchased my research and created a, a college textbook on, on police, you know, uh, police culture. And I thought, man, like every student in America is going to read that book. Like, great going. Because, there, look, there's not a lot of uh, cultural anthropologists that were chief of police, SWAT, and undercover that, that are able to share that experience firsthand. So to my, to my surprise, probably no college students ever read the book. But uh, writers did. So my wife is a mystery writer. And, and so she, writers and TV producers and movie people started to read my book because it gave a real life character portrait of what these alpha undercover SWAT guys look like, the way they live. And, and you know, you, in mystery and TV, I mean, they really want that character portrait. You can write any kind of crime around a, an interesting character. So uh, out of the blue, uh, someone had contacted me years back and asked me to come up to a writer's conference and teach undercover to, to writers. And I didn't read fiction. I just, I just never did. So yeah. I show up and, North Carolina and like I didn't know who Lee Childs was like all the people you're supposed to know right the the who's who of mystery writing like I was so naive you know and, and I'm just pouring my heart out and and teaching and so this beautiful young woman comes up afterwards and she's like you know I wish I'd met you years ago you're like one of the, the characters in my best-selling series and I'm thinking yeah I bet you wish you'd met me years ago <laughs> I thought she was coming on to me but what I, I didn't understand was at the time, uh, you know, she's one of the best-selling authors in the world. She's, she's hit the bestsellers list 39 times. And, and she was such a professional. And she was really, truly wanting to pick my brain. And uh, so that's how we started. Then I invited her to come to my agency and do a ride-along. And so I put her with SWAT. And I did that for the public. It wasn't just for her, you know, public relations. And and she, she just was so in, uh, intuitive and just so brilliant and, and we just connected and we both knew that you know this was a god connection and it wasn't long after that that we committed to mary and and we've been together since then so what got you into writing all of these books you know i was when i was go i did my master's degree and my and my my phd in seven years everything seven years and i was so focused and, and i'm a high content producer and, and I was in that, that, that stream of writing and writing, but it was all peer review, very, you know, you know how it is, very academic. And I just needed to like let my hair down, I guess, you know, 
And and then somebody when I when I got into this writer's world and I started helping writers and they're like, well, why don't you write as, as just a creative expression? So I started writing mysteries, thinking, you know, I mean, I lived the life, you know, and and I tell you, it, there was no traction, there was no success, and then God just said, son, I did not call you out to write a mystery novel. He said, I want you to write for me, and and look, I did. He said, I will never prosper your writing until you write for me. So I put I put all that aside and I started researching and and, and the word and and I started writing books that God put on my heart and, and look, some of them are marriage books that Lee and I've done together. Uh, we've got a really successful one that that's for law enforcement marriage. Uh, it's called Uncuffed. And uh, but most of my books are like like you know breaking strongholds and and books written to men. Uh, it's just because I I, do, I have a very blue collar you know kind of relatable voice even in the way I write and so. You know, when God puts that inspiration on your heart, uh, you you go with it. You know, when you had said, like, if a famous minister or a minister of a big church decided to retire and um, you were just kind of waiting on the phone call. Uh, and I think a lot of people end up having that dream. But how does what you thought ministering would be compared to what you've discovered it actually is? Man, that is, I'm telling you. That is a great question. You know, I did. I thought because you get locked into the institutionalization of, of religion. And and I thought, you know, when God said, Scott, I want you to I'm calling you out to, to pastor. Actually, it was I'm calling you out to shepherd. And of course, you know, I relate that to pastor. So what I'm thinking is, is, well, I've got to get a job at a church because to be a pastor, I've got to I've got to have that that, you know, that that tag on my on my shirt, my flannel shirt that says Pastor Scott. So I started applying to jobs at churches and and then there was this one church that we were really involved in and we were doing marriage ministry and and you know we were kind of up in the hierarchy of this kind of a kind of mega church. Yeah. And and there was like this junior associate assistant to the assistant men's pastor. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. I'm gonna get to be a real pastor because I'm gonna get a, a check and I'm gonna get that tag that says Pastor Scott. So I applied. I mean, I'm a man and it's men's ministry, you know, and, and I see the guy in the lobby one day and and I, I was like, I was bursting with, yes, I'll do it. And he looks at it and he goes, he said, you know, he said, he said, you don't really fit in here. And look, Ward, I was just devastated, like devastated. And I was so mad, N not at him. I was mad at God. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like you called me out of my career to pastor and then then you set me up for this. And he said, and when he let my pity party, you know, wind down, he's like, I didn't call you to out to fit in. And 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 I realized that I've been called to preach in the margins, in the same places I worked undercover, in the same places where where people don't show up in a certain building at a certain time uh, and to listen to a, a rote message. Like God called me to minister. My first place pastoring. Uh, I guess delivering a message was in Fort Worth and the guy's a friend of mine and he, and it's in the winter. And he says, Hey, he said, make sure you wear a jacket. Okay. That's cool. It's cold outside. And he goes, make sure you go to the bathroom before you get here. And I'm like, what are you doing, man? And he goes, well, we don't have any water. We don't have any, um, we don't have any heat. And, and the Holy spirit said, that's where I need you to be. And I went and it was about 70 men between like like halfway homes and addiction centers. 
And, and it was the most powerful, Holy Spirit-driven uh, environment I'd ever spoken at before. And that's yeah. what God told me, son, you don't, you don't need a badge. You don't need a pulpit. You don't need a mic to minister. You just need to say yes. You have, you said something that I, I, I pray that a lot of people will take time to understand. I know it's important for all of us to, to serve in church at the local church, to be a part of that community. But when your eyesight starts to focus on moving up to the next level within that local church, and, th and then all of a sudden, Satan just walks in and he starts to paint a different picture. And most people end up getting hurt down the road. And they're like, well, what happened? Because if something happened, if something good happens to them as they're serving, it's always praise the Lord, praise the Lord. But sometimes it's not always the always God. And then when we get hurt, those people leave church. They have a bad taste in their mouth. And in today's, and, and I think it's worse today than I've ever seen it. And especially in the modern churches, the mega churches are, are, are really horrible at it, where people get caught up in serving. And then their eyesight thinks, oh, I'm going to ride the pastor's coattail. And then they end up getting hurt. They end up getting jaded and they're completely disoriented. When, and that's the time when they just need to like catch their breath and get back into the word and ignore everything else. No, you're exactly right. And I know you and I've communicated back and forth about, about what, what they call church hurt. And, and we've really tried to avoid that. It's like the, it, it's a broad brush stroke that condemns the entire body, sometimes <laughs> the institutional and sometimes the body of Christ. So we always encourage people, no, 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 name who specifically hurt you. Because, because it is, when you just broad brush it and say, well, the church hurt me, then it's easy to walk away from it. But I believe right now that there's such an underground movement to go back to the first century church in the book of Acts, the intimacy of the home church. Mega churches, that's a Constantine construct from the fourth century. Get everybody in the big building and watch one guy speak, and speak whether he's a great teacher or not. Yeah. I've heard some great anointed teachers. I've heard some not so great teachers but maybe great speakers, but that's not, that's not where I believe that we were called to serve in the body of Christ. I mean, because as a congregation, if there's only one guy speaking or, or, or person, you're only going to rise to the level of maturation. If you're not walking walk out seven days a week, yeah, there really is no intimacy with the body of Christ. So we've always, we've always ministered in home, in our home church, uh, out of our house. And there's always been such organic, explosive growth. And, and, and I mean like growth in numbers, but growth in maturation. Uh, we always encourage the spirits of the gift. Uh, we really do focus on the, on the five-fold ministry. And we want to identify gifts. And we want to, in an apostolic way, it's like, look, our house is full. Right? You're welcome, but y'all need to go do your own thing, you know? And, and I just think in this institutional structure, it's more important to have paying customers than it is to empower your anointing and send them out to, to share the gospel. You know, recently I had interviewed a uh, well-known recording artist and we got into the discussion and he was explaining and, and he, he's a man of faith, he's a believer. And he said, you know, when people get into music, 
for example. He goes, a lot of people get the big dreams. They, they, want, they want to you know, do concerts and do all these things. But he yeah. said, in reality, God may not be calling you to that level. God could be calling you to, to go sing children's songs at children's church, maybe yeah. to go to the nursing home or the, the living facilities for seniors and just sing to them. Because there is a gap there that God wants filled and he wants people who will obey and just do those things because a lot of us think that the reward is here on earth when the reward is really in heaven. Right. No, you're, you're exactly right. You know, and I think I know that God had prepared me for this for a time such as this in my career, because, you know, your status as a commander was based on the number of people you commanded. And, and so, you know, he had to free me from that. And I'll tell you, one of my one of my most intimate, most favorite sermons, I guess, you know, my moments of ministering was me and another man and, a, and another man sitting at Panera. And the man, one of the men we've been walking with, and he said, look, I need to confess, you know, I need to confess my sins and, and I need to be healed. And so for about three hours, we, we ate, you know, we ate some Panera and, and their kitchen sink cookie. And we ministered to this brother. And I'm like, this is church. This is church. And, and I do. I love the corporate worship. I really do. I like being in the body because I, I'm a social person. But I also understand that's not where the intimacy happens. That's, that's, not, that's the structure and the rules. We really, the, 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 the relationships are built in small groups, in home churches, and in meetings at the, you know, at the Panera or at the gym or, or any place you are is where Jesus is going to meet you. Yeah, I mean, even Jesus, as he walked the earth, would save save people one at a time. You know, it wasn't yeah, always the yeah. 5,000. And uh, right. we need to realize that. And, you know, for us, you know, one person at a time can fill up heaven pretty quick. And uh, yeah, no we kidding. need to realize how powerful the, the movement of the Holy Spirit is, especially when we're willing to listen and we're willing to obey and we're willing to move. But let me ask you this, Scott, because you and Leah have a Christian publishing house, Five Stones Press. How does how did you get that to fit into ministry? Yeah, you know, we so we have a we have a 501c3. Uh, it's Five Stones Church. And part of that is the press. And it's funny, you know, when 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 I was writing the mysteries and, and Leah and I, we'd actually started a publishing house and it was for mysteries. And, and Ward, it was so successful. I mean, God was, I mean, money was just pouring in. I don't want to say God, but <laughs> money was pouring in. And after about a couple of years, God said, again, you always have to be teachable and correctable. You know, you feel like you're walking out the will of God and you might be for a season, but you got to be aware of that transition. And God said, I didn't call you all out to publish mystery books. I need you to shut it down. So we shut it down. We gave all the rights back to the authors. This, these were mysteries. We gave them all back. And for about three months, I'm like, like, what's going on? Like, what? Like, here's my second career that you told me to shut down. And I did. And, and now there's nothing. So my wife and I are, are in literally we're in Rome and we're standing at an elevator bank. And this pastor walks up and he's got a huge marriage ministry. And we know him. We know. I mean, he was instrumental in our marriage, uh, his ministry. And he says, I know who y'all are. And we're like, yeah, we know who you are. He goes. <laughs> I've been praying about y'all. He said, I want to have, I want to start a publishing house for my ministry 
to do my books and other pastors, other speakers' books. And he goes, but I know y'all are too busy to do it. And I'm like, let me tell you what God did three months ago. He opened that space for the, for us to, to go and serve in this ministry. So for about a year, I committed to work for him uh, full time and set up a ministry. And we published some of his books and republished other authors. And, and then after that, uh, I finished my assignment. And then God said, now, you do the same for your ministry. So Five Stones Press is, it's a faith-based uh, Christian-only ministry. And it's what we do is everything we make, we give everything back to the kingdom. And um, and all of our editors covered us, our whole team, everyone's a believer. And, and so for us, uh, it really started to take off. And then again, course correction, God's like, I only want you to publish people that you know personally or that come personally recommended. Because for us, it's not about royalties, it's about relationship. And so I'm gonna, you know, I could, and a lot of pastors, you know, they, they hate to hear this, but they're great on the stage, but bad on the page. And because they're great storytellers, but when it comes down to writing the tedium of paragraphs and structure, uh, so that's really where I've been blessed, is to take their, their concept, their idea, uh, even some of their sermons and kind of walk them and coach them through the process of, of amplifying their voice through the written word. So that's, like that's where God's put me in that season. Wow. I mean, yeah. so what's the future hold for Scott Silveri? Oh, only, right. Only God knows, but we're happy about it. But, you know, I tell you, it's so exciting. We, we've always done we've always done home church, home ministry. But uh, sometimes we'll be attached to a to a church as a small group or something. And really, this is this has been an evolution for about seven years when God called me out. You know, like I thought the next day after retirement, I was going to be preaching somewhere. And, and of course, the long journey was the evolution, the growth, the transition, the preparation. And actually, this past Monday, we met with a core group uh, and we announced to them that, that, that we're going to plant a church. And uh, so our goal is uh, at the beginning of the year is to is to start is to plant our church. And um, so we're going to continue meeting with our group as we do during the week. But we've, we're starting to assemble our core group, our intercessors, uh, some of our, our elder board. And, but the, the challenge, as you know, is we don't want to replicate what God's called us out. We truly, truly are pressing into the Holy Spirit. And we wanted to, in the most sincere, organic way, to resemble that first century church in the book of Acts. Yeah, <clears throat> Scott, I always, I, I always like reading articles about... Mm -hmm the modern day church, if it's good or if it's bad. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that really got to me was that 20% of church going people only read their Bible. So there's another 80% that do not. So there's another 80% who keep showing up, but they're ill-equipped. And there's, and you know, you and I kind of had this conversation, a little short, super short conversation on Instagram and where I'd made the comment that uh, because of the pandemic, you know, a lot of people found out which churches had ministries that stuck and people came back when the doors reopened. And there were churches where people did not come back and are probably struggling a bit. And I looked at it with the fact that uh, that means somebody was preaching the word correctly and somebody else was preaching fluff. And that's how I yeah. looked at it. And that's kind of still how I do look at it today. And part of me is, is like, that's why we need to continue reading the word every single day, because you can't depend on, like you said, 
you have this big, large place. You have one guy talking every Sunday, but uh, God has called us to be responsible. And part of that responsibility is to know what his word says about us. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's where part of the failure is. And uh, are you seeing yeah. some right. of those gaps being um, attended to? Yeah, I do. I believe that, that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit that is the people that we talk to. And, and, and it's amazing. The Holy Spirit aligns people for, for similar purposes. And we've been in a season of alignment where we're just out of the blue. Uh, people are coming up and like, I really feel the Holy Spirit's leading me to come and meet you. And 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 a lot of that is there's a deep desire to get back to to true Bible-based preaching. Uh, let me say teaching, and because I don't want to confuse that with with a motivational speech that's wrapped around one th thread of Scripture, and you're you're spend 30 minutes talking about your life story. Right. Uh, I mean, and that's where God moved us. He said, really, all I want you to focus on when you plant your church is worship and teaching the Bible. Everything else is going to take care of itself. So, you know, when we look at that, it's like all, all we've ever done, even, even, you know, I know it was, um, you know, just um, with, with the, the Protestant Reformation is uh, that was a break and it was significant. But really, we've continued with this liturgical uh, tradition, even, even after the Protestant Reformation, we do things a little different and we've split like there's Catholicism, there's, you know, there's the Protestant. But by and large, we still replicate the same itinerary. Uh, you know, there's a money break, the worship lasts this long, the sermon's got to be this. And and just, I think people are just, like you said, when the doors close, there was a, there was a season of sifting. And that secret sensitive, uh, motivational, feel good about yourself, there's no grounding in the word of God. I think that's when people fell away. But their their desire to know God didn't, didn't, didn't diminish. Right. They just realized, I'm not being fed at this table. I need to go find another table. And I think those tables are popping up in what we call the underground of the home churches. Yeah, I, I believe that. I believe that. And ladies and gentlemen, Scott Silveri. Um, Scott, I'm impressed with you more than you'll ever know. I want to read more of your books because I'm still reading uh, Breaking Strongholds. And men, I will tell you this right now. Uh, that is a book for us. You need to read it, regardless if you have any, if you think you have any problems or not, because there's growth there and there is truth there. And uh, you know, we live in a day and age where people want to take away our masculinity and uh, and kind of uh, take the men out of men. But men, it's time to rise up to be men and to be a man. And Scott, I think you can agree that being a real man is a man who loves God, uh, loves his wife, loves his children and wants to obey and walk in his light every single day. Yeah. You know, I, I, will, I would like to add that, that the verse that, that changed my life, exactly what you said, is 1 Corinthians 16, 13, 14. And when I read it, I just, I was like, yeah, we can be men. And, and it says, stand guard, be firm, act like men. But in all you do, do in love. And for me, the transition in my life was I'd always been a man. I wanted to be a, 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 you know, an alpha male, be hard, be tough, stand firm. And I miss that part about in all you do, do in love. So God does want us to be as he designed us to be as men, but he also wants us to do everything in love. So for me, that was, to me, that's the, the manhood verse.
that should guide every man on this planet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, Scott, that uh, we should all think of maybe having a little bit of Samson, a little bit of David, a little bit of Solomon, and of course, everything Jesus within us. So guys, it's time to rise up. And Scott Silveri, my goodness, you are literally, I'm, I'm giving you a full-blown open invitation on my show anytime. I love talking to you and... Uh, you and Leah just keep doing what you're doing and may God bless every step, Thank you. every place you step foot. May it be blessed. Everything you touch be blessed in Jesus name. And uh, thank you for, for being on the program. Oh, I appreciate it. I received that blessing. I received that. I have full confidence that God, I've declared that promise. So I thank you for blessing me with those words. Oh, you're, oh, I do. Um, I pr- I, I'm so happy we got to talk to each other. Oh, and and this won't be the last time. So, Scott, (laughs) many blessings to you and Leah and your family. And, of course, your ministry. Just keep doing what you're doing. And, ladies and gentlemen, please look up. Hey, Scott, what is the website that everybody can go and visit and learn more about you? Yeah, well, scottsilveri.com is is my site. And then from there, there's there's links to our ministry. Excuse me. That's, there's links to our ministry page and, and everything that we're doing. But scottsilveri.com is the easiest place to find. Now, can they all, can all, can people look through the list of the books that you've written there as well? Yeah, sure. It's there on, the, on that uh, scottsilveri.com. And then there's a link over to Five Stones Press, our publishing house, that has our books on there, as well as the other authors that we published. Oh, fantastic. Again, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. And ladies and gentlemen, you got to stay with me because I'll be right back after this.